Good morning, TLC. I'm so glad you're here. Last week was my birthday, and I got to preach on abstinence, so that was awesome. And uh, this week it's Father's Day, and I get to preach on the beauty of sex, which seems kind of apropos because I got uh, three biological children, so it's happened at least three times for me. So I'm going to try to explain to y'all a little bit about the beauty of sex. We're actually going to be looking in Song of Solomon chapter 4, but before we dive into that, would you allow me to read something to you? A hymn for 20 years. She is my North Star, bright and beautiful, my consistent constant. She cannot be my constellation, but she points the way. She is my faithful, forever and growing, my defense and desire. She cannot be my completion, but she points the way. She is my Christmas, excitement and gift, my today and tomorrow. She cannot be my redemption, but she points the way. She is my dream, jawline and lips, my black-haired beauty. She cannot be my everything, but she points the way. Wisdom crowns her head and flows over shoulders to nurture the young. Love fills her lungs, but is freely given with no thought for her own breath. Strength courses her veins, causing surroundings to flourish and dead things to bloom. Age has been a gift to her, and I am the recipient. The eternal has been amused to her, and we are all the better. I wrote that for my 20-year anniversary a couple of years ago. Come on now. Now, 20 years, is that's a big milestone, right? Big marker. And so for 20-year anniversary, like, you try to reach deep into the reservoir of romance. You know what I'm saying? Like, you try to go a little extra. Now, when Brenda and I were first dating, though, every day was an excuse to be romantic, Right? I was doing poetry fairly consistently. I was writing her letters, telling her how much I loved her and cared about her. I I would send her cards. I would do different things just to serve her and and, and care for her. I even once made her a dozen roses. Not bought, made her a dozen roses. You see, when I was a senior in high school, I learned how to make balloon animals. That's right. Super sexy, I know. It's all the way to get the ladies. And so I could make dogs. I could make uh, bears. I could make hearts. I could make uh, birds and swords and flowers. And so once, just because I made a dozen roses. I knew she was having a hard week at school. So I made a dozen balloon roses and I talked to her roommate and I got them snuck into her room and put in there just so that when she came back from class, there was a dozen roses, right? Because that's what you do when you're dating. Uh, One of the things though that we have learned as Brenda and I do premarital counseling together is that research shows that when you get married, uh, men tend to move from focusing on wooing their spouse to providing for their spouse. And so one of the things that we talk about is some differences in even how uh, men and women uh, often need to re-engage certain muscles based on different needs that we have that we bring into marriage. In our text this morning, uh, we're going to see a little bit of uh, what the man does, and we'll talk through it as we walk through the text. And then at the very end, what I'd like to do is offer some very specific applications, super practical stuff, that if you're married, you best take some notes. If you're dating, you're definitely going to want to. If you're thinking someday you might like to be married, then I would say 
pay attention because there's some things in here that I think can be incredibly beneficial to us all. So, Song of Songs, chapter 4, all right? Song of Songs, chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1, and it's the husband speaking to his new bride, and he says this, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. In other words, she got all her teeth, which I'm guessing back then was not always the norm. So that's a nice thing. He says, your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of gazelle that browse among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Uh, This is some erotic love poetry that homeboys drop in on his new bride. Now, there's a couple of things that I think are important for us to catch. Uh, We're going to then read verses 8 through 11 and then 12 through 15, and each one shows us something that I think is valuable to be reminded of in their conversation. Remember, we talked about this at the very beginning, uh, the first, sorry, second week of our series, uh, that what we have before us is a collection of love poems, many of them very erotic in nature, celebrating love and the sexual nature of a husband and wife. It kind of starts at the beginning almost with like uh, a marriage celebration, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, she says, and then it's kind of moving through to the wedding night, and we're kind of getting to eavesdrop in on this conversation that these lovers are having. And what they're doing is they're kind of showing us, hearkening to us back to the Garden of Eden, saying this is what it's supposed to be like before things got messed up, before it got complicated and weird and awkward, and this is what it's supposed to be like. And we have the privilege of being able to recognize what God desires, not just what he initially created, but what he desires for a husband and wife today. Now, one of the things that we see right here is he begins talking about all of the parts of her body that he loves and that he is just so attracted to, but it's very interesting Commentators note that he starts out first and foremost with the eyes. You see, the man, the husband here, he understands that love sees the person. Love sees the person. All right, he respects his lover as a person. She's not simply an object to him. The first thing that she that he looks at is her eyes. If you want to see somebody, you don't look at their physical features, you look at their eyes. They always say the eyes are the windows of the soul. It's kind of like why uh, there is the unfortunate joke, hey, mister, my eyes are up here, right? Because the point is that if you're looking at something other than the person's eyes, you're viewing them almost as an object, something to be consumed. And even though they are married, she's his, he's hers, he still first starts with the eyes, Now, this isn't to say that he's unaware of her bodily beauty. He's not, but he starts there. Uh, In fact, Ian Proven says this. He says, she is not to him merely one woman among many, coveted for sexual charms. She is the one and only woman for him. 
a person to be looked in the eyes. Let's continue reading verses 8 through 11. He says to her, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's den and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Now, now let's start with the elephant to the room. Okay? <laughs> my sister, my bride. All right. She is not his sister in the sense that they share the same mother and father. Uh, it was often used to talk about the type of relationship that is so close as if you were to share parents. So it's not to say that this is a sister because they're like, and the Bible is very clear that that ain't good and cool and not what God desires. However, when he says my sister, my bride, what he's saying is that we have this closeness, this intimacy, this tightness of relationship. But one of the things that we find here, okay, is that he calls her his bride. This is actually the first time in Song of Songs where he uses this language to refer to his wife. Not that they haven't had it all along, but now he's actually highlighting it. And we'll talk a little bit about why that is. But uh, one of the things that we find here is at the very beginning, he actually calls to her. See what he says in verse 8? Come with me. He's calling out. He's saying, come down from the mountain. Come and be with me. He understands that love demands equality. He doesn't tell her what to do. He invites her to come and join him. He's treating her as an equal in their love. She's not merely a possession of his, but a partner, a teammate. And he treats her with equality. Now, you have to understand, this is not the norm of the day. Now, this is actually uh, very countercultural in how he is treating his wife during this time. Uh, the Bible does this on purpose because it's trying to reset our understanding of what God's desire. We're trying to get back to the garden in how a man and a woman interact with one another. So first, he understands that love sees the person, but then secondly, he understands that love demands equality. Let's continue reading in verse 12. He says, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. In verses 12 through 15, we understand uh, that he understands that love demands permission. Love demands permission permission. Uh, we see at the very beginning uh, of this little section in verse 12 that he says that she's locked up, she's closed, she's sealed, all right? Uh, only somebody who disrespects love will try to take paradise without permission. Let me say that again. Only someone who disrespects love will try to take paradise without permission. Now, there's actually two pieces to consider here in understanding what's happening in the text. 
Okay? The first is the word bride is used again in verse 12. All right? So when the husband is using the word bride, what he's talking about is that he is actually has been given permission that has been granted to this relationship by God because they've entered into a marriage covenant. All right? So there's two pieces of permission going on here. The first, that bride indicates to us that God has granted permission to this relationship and the sexual union with which they're about to engage in. All right, and then secondly, all right, he also recognizes that he needs her permission or blessing as well. She's sealed up. She's locked up. She's this protected garden. And he recognizes that. And so by talking about that, he's looking for an invitation into this garden this beautiful thing that she has that is precious and amazing and and beyond anything that he could ever experience normally. There is no garden that we're aware of in the ancient times that would have had everything that he's describing here. What he's saying in hyperbole is that she is this amazing, beautiful, uh, uh, priceless treasure. But it's hers. And so he's looking for that invitation. Uh, Dr. Cheryl Exum, she explains that the word orchard that we see there in verse 13 is the Hebrew word pardes or pardes. It's actually where we get our English word paradise, okay? So what he's actually doing is describing this paradise that she is, talking about not just her body, but everything about her. Now, this uh, word orchard that we get the word paradise, it's actually... Uh, from a a Persian word, that's where the Hebrews borrow it, and it talks about an enclosed park. Uh, Dr. Ian Proven says this. He says, the memory of Solomon's own construction of gardens and parks lingers in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 alongside his accumulation of slaves, treasures, and women. And it may also linger here. You see what's happening is there is a differentiation between how Solomon treated women and how the lover and his beloved treat one another. Solomon accumulated so many things. Uh, Women were one of them. And they're actually drawing a parallel, a difference between how Solomon acted and how God intends us to act, how it would actually look back in the garden. And so when he talks about her being this treasure, this closed-up garden, he's really highlighting the difference between the gardens that Solomon had and how he views the garden. We continue reading. He says, Proven does, the emphasis on the inaccessible wonders of the woman is, in this context, significant. Solomon possesses women in his pursuit of paradise. In other words, he's trying to get paradise by pursuing women. True love, the husband here, recognizes the sanctity of paradise and respects her boundaries. In other words, you can't get paradise through women as Solomon was trying to do, or vice versa, ladies. You can't get paradise by using men when you respect and understand and honor the paradise that is found in the personhood. That's actually, when you're invited into, that's how you experience paradise. Um, I remember uh, I was a sophomore in high school Um, when I was in like sixth grade, it's kind of weird, but I can still remember the day I kind of made a conscious decision to not care about Jesus. I cared more about my friends and them thinking that I was cool. And so it was literally a moment I can still remember to this day where that shift happened in me mentally. 
And that carried through in middle school and in high school up until kind of near the end of my sophomore year of high school. This was early, the beginning of my sophomore year. And I had a buddy of mine from my church. He acted pretty much the same way. Uh, I was at the point where I was just starting to recognize that if I was going to call myself a Christian, it probably ought to matter how I act, how I think, the things I pursue, what I go after. And so I was just starting to make a move towards Jesus. Uh, He, unfortunately, was kind of beginning to make a move that would take him in a different direction. Uh, He was actually uh, dating a girl uh, that was also in our youth group that I knew really well. It wasn't a huge church. And uh, we were talking about, like, the kinds of relationships that we would want to be in. I was just starting a relationship of, of my own as a sophomore. And uh, we were talking about how we wanted to kind of treat our girlfriends. And I can remember very vividly him saying, yeah, no, I, I think my girlfriend should give me sex. And we were both virgins at the time. And I remember him saying to me, Uh, the line he was going to use on his girlfriend. And it was a line that I had heard other guys talk about. And I wish to this day that I had actually stood up against it. But he told me, and this is actually what he said, um, he said "If to his girlfriend, if you love me, you'll do it. Uh, I remember growing up when I was in middle school and high school, I heard a lot of guys talk like that. If you love me, you'll do it. The sad thing is, is that's such an abuse of the word love. Uh, In the Bible, love, whether it's sexual love, uh, a familial love, a friendship love, uh, love is always about what you give to someone, how you protect someone, rather than what you get from that person. And the way that he was using the word love here, if you love me, you'll do it, was uh, such a, a shocking opposite of what the Bible describes as love. It was all about himself. It was selfish, pathetic, me first, turned his girlfriend into a commodity rather than a person, something to be consumed rather than cherished. And I I can still vividly remember that conversation and, and what took place not long after that in their relationship. And I so wish at the moment I, I was able to stand up against him. I think that sex is often thought about very similarly in our Western culture today. Sex is usually this thing that we use as a bargaining chip. It's it's a way to get something that we desire or want. Men and women often use it differently, but it's very much selfish rather than self-giving. You see, the only way that it can truly be self-giving is within the covenant of marriage, where it is protected, where you've actually made a decision of how you're going to respond and react and engage with the person that you have committed to be with, that covenant that you've made before man and God. Love, the word actually here in Hebrew is dod, uh, is used here in chapters 4 and 5 to describe a sexual love. But with all love in the Bible, it's always about giving. It's always for the other's pleasure. It's always to protect the other and build them up. And it's so powerful, that's why it requires needs a covenant. It's kind of what we talked about last week. Let's continue on. Verses 16 through chapter 5, verse 1. He has recognized a few things, right? Let me re-say them again. 
he sees, he understands that love sees the person. He understands love demands equality, and he understands that love demands permission. All right, with that in mind, we see how she responds. She says, awake north wind and come south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I have come, he says, I have come into my garden my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. She reciprocates his love, a genuine self-giving love that sees her as a person, that treats her as an equal, that seeks permission, not dominance. And she responds by inviting him in to taste the choice fruits, and he does. And if you'd like to know what the choice fruits are, you're going to have to ask your mom or dad because I promised I'd keep this 80s PG. All right. So here's what I'd like to do in the last few minutes that we have together. I'd like to talk about an application of how we actually develop that kind of love. Uh, the kind of love that is invitational, the, the kind of love that sees one another as equals, the kind of love that recognizes each person within the relationship has different needs, things that we need to pursue to make them feel cared for and built up and protected so that you can have this kind of a relationship, a relationship that God designed and desires for his people, the blessing that he's given us. So, Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to talk about a a wife's most basic needs and a husband's most basic needs. Now, these kind of flow out of a book called Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts by Drs. Les and Leslie Parrott. Uh, It's what Brenda and I use. I've shared some things from it before, but uh, I found these particular things to be really uh, beneficial and helpful. So uh, if you're not a fast note taker, uh, you can pull out your phone and take some pictures of the screen. I'm just going to put a couple things up there, and then I'm going to explain them. So we'll talk first about... uh, a wife's most basic needs. Now, I also want to say this before we dive into it. These are generalizations, okay? All right? So if you don't hit every single one of these as a female, um, that's okay. All right? If you don't hit every single one of these as a male, that's okay. These are generalizations. are generally true, okay? But not every single thing holds up perfectly for every single person. So where there's something to learn, learn it. Where there's not, let it go. It's all right. So... A wife's most basic needs in marriage are number one, to be cherished, number two, to be known, and number three, to be respected. So starting with to be cherished, the only thing that should come before her is God himself. The only thing that should come before her is God himself. Guys are often really good at cherishing their girlfriends, right? Being romantic, talking about, you know, doing all kinds of great things and fun things. Uh, They say that there's some gender differences that research has shown. Uh, Guys are often uh, doing that to woo and eventually get the woman to the altar, okay? They think women think of it in the same way. And so once now we're married, well, that worked. It happened. It's good, okay? Like, it did what it's supposed to do right? Now, of course, women think like, no, whoa, that, that like, how you got me, that's how you better keep me, homeboy. Like, there's some stuff to do, right? Guy's like, whoa, I didn't know that was part of the whole, like, conversation. Like, I thought, like, I just did it. Look, it, wa- it worked, okay? All right, so women need to be cherished beyond simply the wooing, beyond simply getting to the altar. 
That is an ongoing need. Every woman needs to feel like she's still the most important thing in her husband's life. More important than the kids, than the hobbies, more important than work, more important than phone. I say that one probably to myself more than anybody else. My wife's always telling me, put your phone down, give me five minutes. Fine. No, she needs to know that she matters more than anything else. Number two, woman's most basic need is number one, to be cherished, and number two, to be known. Now, uh, for most women, being known or understood means having her feelings validated and accepted. It's one of the things we talk about in communication, okay? Um, it literally took Brenda and I probably close to 15 years before we learned this. I, I should say before I learned it because it was really my issue, okay? Brenda would come uh, home from work or a long day with the kids or just whatever, and she would just be frustrated with something, something was going on, and she would start to share it with me. And as she would share it, I would instantly start thinking about what she needed to do to fix the problem, right? That's what I do. I'm a dude. I fix things, right? I solve problems. You give me a problem, I'm fixing it for you. I'll tell you what. So I'm like, well, have you talked to so-and-so? Well, did you think about this? Should you, you should probably do that. Hey, why don't I? And she would be so frustrated with me. And neither one of us could really figure out. I'm like, well, don't tell me a problem if you don't want me to fix it. Okay? (laughs) And she, what we learned, though, is that she wasn't interested in me solving the problem. What she was interested in is me listening to her and validating her feelings. She didn't need me to solve the problem. She's a big girl. She actually knows how to solve her own problems, all right? What she needed was for me to actually listen to her and know her and validate her feelings. And so one of the things that we've learned in our communication is now she'll tell me up front, I don't need you to fix this. I need you to listen. And you know what? That's been a world of difference for me. When she tells me that, I'm like, okay, cool. I, I'll just, I can shut that part of the brain off. I don't need to... I'll just sit and then I'd be like, oh, babe, that must have sucked. Like, that was hard. Dang. Yeah, I can't believe the kids did that or this happened or, man, that must have really been a bummer. You must have really been sad. And she's like, yes, honey. It's exactly. You guys, I don't know if you guys remember, we showed this once before, so I couldn't show it again. But this is a fantastic uh, video of a guy and a girl and they're sitting on the couch and the lady has a nail stuck in her forehead. Do you remember this video? And uh, she's like, I just have this piercing headache in my head. It's just always hurting. And he's like, yeah, honey, because you have a... And she's like, I don't need you to fix it. I just need you to listen. He's like, yeah, but... She's like, just... And he's like, oh, that must really hurt. And she's like, yes, thank you. That's... But that's exactly... Women need to be known. They need to be cherished. They need to be known. And number three, they need to be respected. They need to be respected. Uh, Doctors Les and Leslie Parrott say this. They said, men are usually quite unaware of how much women need to be respected. Why? Because when men are not respected, they react very differently. A man who does not feel respected, for example, is apt to become self-righteous and indignant. He feels even more worthy of respect when others don't respect him. He may even give less until he gets what he feels he deserves. Women operate differently. When they are not respected, they feel insecure and can often lose their sense of self. That's why it's so vital 
for you husbands to take special care of your partner's need for respect. It's a completely different way of viewing it. I, I just realized this yesterday. Brenda and I were driving someplace and we were having a conversation. And in the moment, I felt like I was, oh, I'm sorry, baby. She's like, dang, you're not, I wasn't supposed to say this. She's here. It's so nice when sometimes she's working in kids ministry and then I say things and she's not here to hear it until later and then I just get in trouble later. I'll just get in trouble soon. It's Father's Day, so I kind of get a free pass. Uh, so <laughs> we're having this conversation though and I was feeling a little disrespected and I realized I was pulling back because I'm like, heck no. And what she was doing was pushing in. And the reason was because she also was feeling disrespected. She needed to experience my, me not pulling back, but actually conversating with her, having the conversation to speak. In those moments, and we'll talk about this in a minute when it comes to the difference between some of the things that guys need, she needed me to step forward into that, not pull back away. So, I hope you didn't feel disrespected, baby. I love you. You know what she says? Every time I talk about her, which during this series is a lot, I have to pay her 50 bucks. So I'm, ba- I'm way, I'm deep right now. All right, so uh, a man's, a man's, or excuse me, a husband's most basic needs in marriages are number one, to be admired, number two, to have autonomy, and number three, to enjoy shared activity, okay? A husband's most basic needs in marriage are to be admired, to have autonomy, to, share, to enjoy shared activity, all right? So to be admired, Let me uh, read a conversation between a husband and wife, Carrie, and her husband, Scott. It's a conversation uh, that uh, Carrie had with Scott uh, because of something that he had built for them, okay? So listen in. She said, oh, Scott, these look great. You did a wonderful job. Carrie's eyes lit up with excitement as she surveyed the planter boxes her husband had just made for their deck. You really have talent. Scott said, I enjoyed making them, but but it's, it's not that big of a deal. And then she said back to him, you underestimate yourself, honey. You're really good. Scott didn't show it, but he was relishing his wife's praise. It felt great. Carrie had tapped into this primarily male need and gladly filled it every opportunity she could. Her admiration was genuine, never insincere or overdone. She was Scott's biggest fan, and their marriage benefited in untold ways from her vocal admiration. Guys need to be admired. When Brenda believes in me, when she's like, babe, I know you can do this. Man, I feel like I can, like I'll do it. I'll run through a brick wall. If she thinks I can do it, I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I can, right? When she tells me that like, babe, I love that, that thing that you did. I loved how you said this, or I loved how you, how you uh, cared for our kids in that moment. You're such a great father, or you're a great whatever. And I'm just like, it's like, it's like oxygen for our lungs. Ladies, I promise you, if your man feels admired by you, he will feel so loved. He will want to walk through a brick wall for you. Second thing men need is to have autonomy. I always struggled with trying to explain what this looks like, okay? Uh, there was a book that was written a while back um, it's not perfect. I think it was written in the 80s or 90s. Uh, it still holds up fairly well, though. Uh, it's called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. You've probably heard of it before. Uh, John Gray. 
And he actually says this when he's talking about uh, autonomy, how, how men need this. He says that when uh, men are faced with stress, they become increasingly focused and withdrawn. At these times, a man's needs for feeling good are different from a woman's. He feels better by solving problems, while she generally feels better by talking about problems. So when it comes to autonomy, there are times when guys just, they need some space. Women often find some of their identity in the people that they are connected to. Men often find their identity in some of the ways that they are differentiated from one another. And so under times of stress, your husband may feel like he's becoming withdrawn, but it's because he feels like he needs to take some time to figure this problem out before he's going to feel really lovey-dovey and want to cuddle. He might need a little bit of space. Understanding that there's some differences between men and women can be super helpful in how we begin to engage. It's the foundation we lay that leads to all the things that are happening in Song of Songs chapter four. The third thing is that men need shared activity. We need to enjoy shared activity. Uh, They said that uh, research shows that men often work really hard at wooing and being romantic to their uh, girlfriends uh, um, before marriage, and then that tends to diminish. And they also said that uh, women are often great at doing shared activities uh, with their um, boyfriends uh, before they're married, and then afterwards that tends to fall off as well. Okay, just like a woman needs to continually feel cherished, uh, they need to know that, that they're the number one thing. Uh, men still need shared activity, okay? If you went fishing uh, with, your, with your husband before you were married all the time, and you even took fish off the hook and got the worm on the hook, and uh, now all of a sudden you're like, oh, no, it's not really my thing. Like, I thought you just would like to go out and do that. Guys, don't, I'm just telling you, like, you might think this is crazy, and I'm not saying all guys are like this, but most guys... They don't want to just go fishing by themselves occasionally. They would rather do it with you. They don't want to go to a movie by themselves. They want to do it with you. They don't want to go eat by themselves. They want to do it with you. They don't want to garden by themselves. They want to do it with you. I want to do everything with my wife. True story. I want shared activity. I want to do it together. I was just telling Brenda how much I enjoy it. I was out working in the yard doing something even different, but she was out in the yard working on something else herself, just the fact that we were doing something in the same yard, like I was like, ah, like I love it. Like I, that fills my bucket. Men still need shared activity, things that we both enjoy, okay? Now, if you hated fishing and you only did it, all right, then don't pick fishing as your shared activity, all right? I'm gonna give you a whole host of different things that maybe you can say, hey, we both enjoy this. We should do it together. You ready? Antique collecting. Any and all sports, Okay? You're like, frisbee golf is not a sport. Well, if you both enjoy it, it can be. Mini golf, actually, my wife and I, we love to mini golf together, but we wind up fighting all the time about who's better. So, But camping, canoeing, table games, coffee, beer tasting, puzzles, cooking, dancing, hiking, horseback riding, jogging, movie going, ice skating, sailing, listening to music, swimming, traveling, walking, woodworking, gardening, art. What is it? What are the things? Look, I just gave you like 30, Okay. Find a couple, you're like, hey, we both enjoy this, all right? And then plan an event together. Wives, find something like, hey, I know he likes this, and yeah, I don't mind it too. Then plan an event to do that. You like going to museums, and you know he does? Buy tickets to the Detroit Institute of Art and go. Take a day. 
You both enjoy going for walks? Tell them, hey, tonight, can we go for a walk together? Awesome. Guys need that. Now, you're probably like, what does all this have to do with Song of Songs 4 and the beauty of sex? Well, here's the truth, friends. If you want to taste the fruit of the garden, you need to know how to cultivate the trees. If you want to have the kind of relationship that God designed and desires for you to have, then you have to understand what your spouse needs. What are those basic things that we do that sees the person as an actual person, not simply as a commodity? What are the things that we need to do that shows the kind of equality that true love demands, that invites into, seeks permission that true love requires? If you want to have passion, intimacy, and commitment, then there's work to be done, tending. Now, it doesn't have to be hard and awful and tedious and something terrible. Most often, it's actually wonderful. That's what allows us to experience Song of Songs 4 and the beauty of sex. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love, your care, your kindness, your compassion on us. God, we are so messed up. We know it. We all bring with us relational brokenness, sexual brokenness into our lives. God, things that have happened to us, things that we've done. But God, you are a God who redeems. You are a God who takes broken things and you make them whole again. You are a God who takes dead things and you make them bloom again. And God, that's what you desire for all of our relationships. For those of us that are currently married, God, maybe for some of us that have been in a marriage and it's not worked out the way that we desired. And we're sitting here wondering, like, how do we engage with this, God? What do we do now? What does the way forward look like? God, you meet us there. God, for those that aren't yet married, and that's a whole lot of folks in this church, God, you want to help us build some of those foundations that first and foremost place you at the base and then through your word and all of the wonderful men and women who have come behind us, their wisdom, that God, we can build a relationship that will allow us to honor you and glorify you and experience all the beauty and blessings that you desired and designed into it. Thanks for that. God, I just pray right now for anybody who maybe is just feeling though like, um, I don't know, maybe that either doesn't apply or it's just too painful to really think about right now. God, I just pray a, a specific and special prayer of a blessing and a sense of your nearness to them. Maybe as they even lament. God, would you let them know that we are more than simply the relationship that we have with others. We are first and foremost about our relationship with you. And then God, would you remind all of us that your church is intended to be our family, a place of community where we can truly be known and where you meet us through the lives of others to move us towards wholeness, to move us towards Christ-likeness, that we might begin to experience the life of heaven that we start today. We love you, Jesus, in your beautiful, your powerful name. Pray all these things. Amen. <laughs>